Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Barbara. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. My name is Barbara, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I have no idea what I'm going to say. Remember being here about eight years ago, um, and I was engaged, and I remember the question and answer period, and I got married at the age of 57. So I just turned 64. How's that possible? And someone in the, in the group said, um, why would you do that? <laughs> that was one of the questions. Why, after, you know, you're 57 years old, why are you getting married? And I, I kind of, you know, the first year of marriage, I sort of asked myself the same question. It was really not easy. It was like, what? What did I do? This is really a mistake. Um, but we're celebrating seven years um, in a couple of a couple of weeks, and it was the best decision I ever made. Second to coming to Overeaters Anonymous. I came to OA quite a long time ago, and in 1975, and I was out of college, I think, almost two years, almost two years when I came to OA, and I had suffered from the disease of compulsive overeating from the time I was a, a teenager, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just couldn't stop eating once I started. And I was a normal weight when I was a child. And I, I had some really strange r- ritualistic behavior around food. I had certain ways I had to eat food, um, which when I look back on it, I don't know, maybe that's what kids do. I never had kids, or maybe kids just do weird things with food. But um, ice cream had to be turned into a puddle or a lake. I just had weird things I had to do with food. And, and, I, and I was really kind of obsessed with food that we couldn't eat in our home because my mother was very focused on healthy, healthy eating. And so we had candy cakes, desserts, stuff like, you know, that kind of stuff, that category only on holidays or birthdays. But I, I, I latched on to my best friend who was um, from an obese family and back in the day in the 50s, there was a Helms Bakery truck that used to go up and down every street in every neighborhood in the United States of America, as far as I knew. And when I was at my friend's house, they bought everything in the friggin' Helms Bakery truck. Um, and I didn't eat it. I just observed, like, God, look at what they can eat. This is really amazing. Um, it didn't take too long for me, for, for the, my habit to kick in, because I really believe that in addition to it being a disease, it was really a habit, and I couldn't kick it. And I thought it was really a moral issue when I, for years before coming to the program. I really wasn't a compulsive overeater for that many years when I looked back, but it felt like it because every day was so painful to me. Um, at the age of 14, I look back at the pictures. Actually, at the age of 13, I remember going to horseback riding lessons, and we changed stables, and what this guy did, the, whoever it was, the director of, of the stable, put everybody in a line, and we're all like these 13-year-old girls and boys, and they told, asked each one of us what we weighed. And my friend Donna weighed three pounds less than me. I was a hundred and, I thought, 
17 pounds, and I'm 5'5", and that's not too heavy, but I knew that I should have been 113 because I was always comparing myself to everyone else and everything else around me, and I was always at the bottom of the totem pole. So at that point, I remember consciously thinking I should be eating less. I didn't have a weight problem, but I should be eating less because I should be different. My self-esteem was all, always so low. I didn't have any idea what was going on. I just knew that I should be like Donna. Three pounds will make a difference in terms of the horse they pick? I, don't, I didn't think so, but it made sense to me at the time, and I felt less than. By the time I was 15, the disease had really started kicking in, actually 16, and in Thanksgiving 1966, I was not even 16 years old, and in one of my first recognized diets that I announced to the world that I was going to go on a diet, it was January 2nd, 1966, and by... Easter vacation, I was below 100 pounds. I started the diet at 144 pounds. And every day was torture for me prior to being on the diet. Once I locked myself into the diet, everything was cool. I mean, I had a goal. I knew what I was going to eat, which got down to about 200 calories a day. I just want to add that. Um, my mother started getting, uh, my parents got a little bit concerned with my behavior. You know, I was having like a hard-boiled egg and lettuce. That was a meal for me. Um, my hair was falling out of my head. My skin was peeling off. I wasn't going to the beach every day, which is what I love to do in the summer. Um, my health was starting to suffer. So they started taking me to the doctor, and the doctor announced that the diagnosis for me was she is anorexic. I'd never heard of that word. Anorexia was not a common term. We didn't talk about the various maladies that are all part of compulsive overeating, in my opinion, in the 60s. So the doctor said, you know, she's not too tightly wrapped. He said this in much different word term, terms. And I think maybe she needs to go to a psychiatrist. So off I went, and that was the beginning of my psychiatric journey, which wasn't really a psychiatrist. It was a, a, a psychologist for most of my life, but it started off focusing on my, you know, the weight and what was going on in my home, which things were not really, really that pleasant in my home life. It was pretty crazy in my house, um, really, really crazy in my house. There wasn't alcoholism, there wasn't any kind of um, physical abuse, but the emotional dynamic in my home was really not um, conducive to producing healthy children or adults or people. And my parents, I don't blame them anymore, but I did. When I, came to, when I came to OA, it was all their fault. I mean, the finger was pointed at my family. If they were just different, of course, my life would be different, and I think it certainly would be. But blaming doesn't do me any good at all. I learned that a long time ago, and my spiritual journey really starts with looking at myself, which is what this program is about. When I graduated high school, I have so much time, you guys. I mean, back in the day, when I came into the program, Oh, my God, we, speakers spoke for 45 minutes, and then there was a leader because our meetings were two hours long. Could you imagine two-hour meetings with a break in the middle? Right in the middle of the meeting, we had a coffee break. And the, the leader spoke for 10 minutes, and the speaker spoke for 45, and then there was time for participation. I mean, in two hours, you can do really, you can really accomplish a lot. So that's how the meetings were back in the day when I came in, and... Wow. Anyway, I graduated high school. I'm digressing. 
at 153 pounds, and at that point in my life, I knew if I just had the right boyfriend, or a boyfriend at all, my life would be absolutely perfect. So I dove into another diet, and, uh, well, I, my weight, my goal weight at that time was, I was always 150, and I got to 122. I went to the beach every day with my friends. I got really tan. I got like 17,000 boyfriends. I went on a date every night with somebody different. I got kind of exhausted by this, and after about three or four months, um, I picked one that was really cute, not very smart, couldn't have a conversation, um, but he was really cute. So we fit the bill um, for a period of six months, and when he met me, it was 122 pounds, and when he kind of gave me the hint that maybe my weight was escalating, his um, nickname for me was Blub Blub. Can you imagine? That was so painful. I was so self-conscious just to start with, but that was his nickname. And by Christmas, he said, maybe we should start dating other people. And by then, I weighed 165 pounds. I dropped out of college. I was 18, and I dropped out of college, and the eating really had taken control of my life. And after we broke up, I enrolled again, and back I went into my coursework, and I dropped out one more time. It was the eating. I don't know if marijuana had anything to do with it. <laughs> I was going to get paid, what can I tell you? <laughs> but anyway, eating, it all kind of went together, and I dropped out of school again. And I stayed at, like, my top weight was 189 pounds. And I remember this moment, it's kind of, kind of like, I don't know, poetic justice or whatever, but we just moved to another hill in Woodland Hills. It's so cool here, you guys. Like 78. It doesn't get to 78 in the summer in Woodland Hills. Are you kidding me? Like, you know, you start out in Woodland Hills at like 103 degrees, and the other end of the valley is another 10 degrees, you know, cooler at minimum. Here, it's like we're in Hawaii. It's so great. Oh, my God. But I, my top weight at 189, I was going to summer school at Pierce College, and we just moved to a hill above Pierce College. That's sort of like the the tie-in here, if there is any, and um, I was wearing a leather jacket in the dead heat of the summer, sitting in my car and crying because I couldn't get a handle on this eating, and I wasn't the kind of individual that, like, oh, I'm gaining weight, no big deal, I've always been really, really vain, and the way that I looked, that was like the value system in my, that I learned from my mother, was you got to look good, you got to look good, and when my my weight kind of topped off at 189, I said, the hell with the way that I look. I was wearing, we had false eyelashes. I was like still kind of dressed well in large clothes. And I said, it doesn't matter. I don't matter anymore. And the suicidal thinking started. I didn't make any attempts on my life, but it was all through food. And I would find myself eating like when I was going to school um, I got back in school then I went to, to Cal State Northridge and eventually got a master's degree like four or five years later I started that but I didn't think any of this was possible I mean I walked through school with chocolate paw prints in all of my books I got through school by eating I got through my life by eating I dealt with life not on life's terms but on my terms by being angry and resentful and spiteful and vengeful and eating, eating, eating all the time. Um, the fact that I got through school, was, uh, it was just a bloody miracle. Then something else happened. I was about to graduate, and my parents said, 
when you graduate, we're going to give you a round-trip ticket to Europe. And I grew up in a neighborhood, a very middle-class neighborhood, but all the kids that I hung out with were from families that, my father was a mailman, which I wore the badge of shame for so many years about that, you know. Uh, no education, higher education in the family. My father should have been a CPA, should have gone to UCLA. I grew up with a, just a plethora of shoulds, and we didn't meet any of the shoulds. In, in my house. My mother was always looking out the window at, you know, the, the nicer cars, the vacations that the families went on, all the things that we couldn't do and didn't do. And so um, I hid. I hid under shame for a long time. And I remember, I digress again, but this is something that was really like sticks out in my, my mind. I remember one of my friends um, met her at school, met her parents, her mother went to pick her up, and she's driving this big... Continentals were, like, really cool cars back in the day, like, um, 40 years ago. And they were like the Tesla of today, or whatever, you know. And so my friend Connie's mom pulls up in this car, and we're going to drive you home because school, I used to walk to school. And it was, like, a mile away. And I wouldn't let her drive me home. I had her drop me off, like about eight blocks away from my house because I didn't want her to see where we lived. That's how much shame I, I wore and I carried and I lived with. And so being called blub blub <laughs> didn't make it any better. But when I graduated college, I'm like, here I am with this gift of a round-trip ticket to Europe. But I knew that a 747 could not possibly allow a fat college graduate to board the plane. No, no, no. So I lost 55 pounds and or more because I got down to 115 or 118 something like that and I boarded the plane and the idea was round trip ticket for a year I have money for maybe three or four months this is what I'm thinking I have my list of where I'm going to go I didn't go with anyone I went by myself because the thought of being of anyone else that could control or direct what we did or having a real true relationship with a friend was something I was really not capable of so I had family in, in London, third, 18th cousins or something that I was connected with, and, and then in, in Paris. And I stayed for 11 and a half months. And it wasn't because it was such a fabulous, incredible trip, which it was. It was because I gained my weight back. And when I got on the plane, I boarded the plane. I'd been in therapy with one therapist for, I guess, three years, and everyone was applauding. You lost your weight. You graduated college. You're going to Europe. Your life is just beginning. And something felt wrong. In the pit of my stomach, I knew that that was not the formula for happiness. Something was really, really missing, and I didn't know what that missing piece was until I came to OA. I didn't know that this is a journey that's physical, emotional, and spiritual. And the spiritual is missing. The emotional, my therapist tried to glue me together on a daily basis that was every day I came there, which is once a week. And I would go to the drugstore, which I think is now called Rite Aid. I don't know what it was called then, Thrifty or something. And i just buy candy bars, and then off I'd go on the Hollywood freeway to go home. And that's how I got through therapy and how I got through my life. And... Um, so I came home, and I was, like, absolutely shocked that anyone even wanted to see me or to speak to me because, in my mind, I projected my value system on everyone else. What they really wanted to know was, what the hell were you doing there for a year? I didn't communicate with anyone. Um, I wrote occasional letters to my mother, like, I'm freezing. Paris is really cold in December. Oh, my God. Like, I couldn't buy a coat. 
She sent me a coat from Los Angeles, California to Paris. I had the money. It didn't dawn on me to buy my own coat. Um, I came back and got a job within about six, actually about three months, because I kept traveling. After traveling for like a year, I couldn't kind of stop. My wheels were still spinning. So I kept traveling for another three months, and I found a way about, I, got, I found a job as soon as I stopped. I found a job within about six weeks, and oh, I found OA eight months later. And that's when my, the journey really started. That's when my life really, really began, because what I found is a spiritual way of life beyond anything that I could ever imagine possible. Number one, starting off with the peace of mind and serenity that I get on a daily basis by working the steps. And what does that mean? Because I wake up with a crazy head. Uh, not every day, but sometimes I wake up with a crazy head and issues that I haven't dealt with, things I haven't talked to people about, um, something coming up months from now, like I'm thinking about this major presentation I have to give to this national organization, actually, not it's a very big organization, uh, I'm standing, and it's three months away, and I think about it every day, and I'm doing my research, and I have to submit the outline to the state of California, and I, I, I worry about this stuff. So what do I do with this stuff? I have to, I write, I write, I write. I've been a 10-step writer ever since I came into the program. And I have, I've had the blessing of having amazing sponsorship. From the very beginning, I've been blessed with amazing sponsorship that have given me what I, what I didn't get, didn't get um, growing up and that I need on a daily basis because I can tell you that I am seriously broken without this program. Um, this is only my second meeting of the week. I usually go to three meetings, sometimes four meetings um, during the week. I've been abstaining three meals a day and nothing in between since 1975. So I've been doing this a long time. But you know what? It's one day at a time. It doesn't matter, like you said in your preamble or introduction, how many years you have. It's like, what is the quality of your recovery? What is, it, what is going on inside of me? What is... What is my state of being? How do I treat people? And I learn that here. I learn that here in these rooms, and I need the rooms because all I have to do is walk into a room and sit down for five minutes, and whatever is going on in my head just disappears. I walk out with the serenity that I did not walk into the room with. But I start off with my spiritual, I, I call it now, I think my spiritual kit or my spiritual backpack and so when I get out, get up in the morning, the first thing I do is I get on my knees and I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And it really is a journey. It's a daily journey. And I have so many blessings in my life as a result of, number one, taking care of the, the disease first. But I had to do it. Like I did what we called gray sheet abstinence, which is basically protein fruit and vegetables and that's how I lost my weight and I didn't have a gold weight I gave that up because anything that I had associated with dieting didn't work before because I had many diets hundreds of diets in a year and I woke up and I failed every day and it was another way to beat myself up so what I found by coming into OA is that I got to change my eating dramatically because it was killing me. It was absolutely so painful to live in my own skin that I was absolutely willing to do, to follow instruction, to follow direction, to do what I was told to do, and to look, number one, at the winners because that's I wanted what 
what they had. I want what you guys have. If you have peace of mind and serenity and you're, at, you're abstinent, that's what I want. I don't care how much time you have. It doesn't really matter. But I gain and I learn and I'm educated on a daily basis from the people around me. Today, I started my day doing just that on my knees, talking to God, doing my reading, my writing, and that's how I start my day. But we went to a funeral for a man that I never met, and it's my stepkid's stepdad who just passed away. And my husband asked me if I would be comfortable because his ex-ex-wife was there. <laughs> I'm number three. <laughs> and I said, of course, because I want to be there to support the kids, which is why he was there. And people kept coming into this church. More and more, the whole place was full, filled with people. And... They had a band and singers, and this was like a celebration of this man's life. And people got up and spoke, and every man, that every person that got up and spoke said they wanted to be like this man. And I did, never met him, but I, we, I wept through the whole, each, each, as each person spoke about him, and as, as the minister spoke about this man, because he lives this program. Everyone said he was so selfless. When they asked him, he, he had throat cancer and it went to the rest of his body and he suffered for two years and one part of his body would go after another and at one point for many months he couldn't speak at all. He couldn't eat. All he could have was soup. That was it and not every day. And he was grateful for everything. And one of the men that got up and spoke said, what can I do for you, Alan? And he said, and he had to write out, he wrote out he couldn't speak and he said I'm so grateful to be here and that you're here with me and I had soup this week it was so great on Tuesday I had soup he was the man was grateful for everything he always had a kind word to say for everyone and lived the spiritual life that I aspire to and never asked for anything for himself and I, that's that's one of my spiritual goals is I am just imbued with self-centered thinking. It's all about me. It's all about me. I think about me first. No one else. It's all about me. And I've learned to, to really to, to let go of that kind of thinking. And it's not like I'm going to give to you if I'm going to get something back. I have like a little formula in my head. What am I going to get out of this transaction? I don't, that's how I came into this program. I don't think like that very much anymore. It still comes up, but because of working the, ten, the 12 steps and looking at my defects of character, which I really, truly thought for so many years that if the new defects of characters would get out of my life, straighten up, say it differently, do it differently, then I'm going to feel peaceful inside. But what I've come to believe, it's like how does someone have seen, how, how did I get abstinence? the same way that I, I need to adopt for my spiritual and my emotional life is I abstain no matter what. It doesn't matter what's going on in my life. If I lose my job, I have an argument with someone that there's a death in my family and I've had some serious you know, suicide, mental illness, living in locked facilities, you know, uh, a lot of things going on in my life. One of my parents dying, my other mom, and on and on and on. It doesn't matter what's going on in my life. I don't eat no matter what. I eat three meals a day and nothing in between. That's my abstinence. People have different opinions about abstinence. This is what works for me. And I know that this is everyone has their own path. I really believe that, that my way 
may not work for anyone else, but I can share my story and hopefully it'll help someone else. But in that in that journey, what I've discovered is that I get to learn to be living and kind, non-judgmental, and all my defects of character no matter what. And the only way that I can flush that out for me is by working a 10-step and looking at what's going on with me and all the people I'm angry at because it starts off with that. And usually I, I may be on the list as well, like, how come I haven't, you know, why? why? I don't ask myself that why, the why question very much anymore. I used to because I really found that it wasn't productive. It really, it's a way to beat myself up. I don't have to ask why, but I need to get into right action. So my day starts off with making my commitment to abstain no matter what, and I do a to-do list. My to-do list, number one, has been from the very beginning, abstinence no matter, I abstain no matter what, and that's, that gives me the opportunity to live a life that's happy, joyous, and free. I was told by a therapist, and I was going to a therapist for 13 years, right here in this neighborhood across the street, who told me because of my um, emotional um, makeup and, number one, my family dynamic and the mental illness in my family that I would never get married, that it wasn't possible for me um, to ever bond with anyone and to have a, a, a real relationship. Um, it was absolutely not possible. And she said this with great sadness. I will add. <laughs> like to tell her, Jackie, it's almost seven years. And I worked through the first year. It was really rough. But you know what? It keeps getting better and better and better. And it's because of this program. It's absolutely because I have... I have, number one, I have steps, I have traditions, I have tools, I have you. Um, I'm not a person, I can't imagine living in, you know, in the big book we have all these stories and there's a story about a guy or in, within a story that lives in some outpost of outer Mongolia or whatever and the guy is sober, like, I need you people. I really, really need to be around my people and to hear your stories and your recovery and about your journey. And that's what makes life go around for me. And when, when I'm not able to get to a regular meeting, I feel, I feel it. Not always. Not always. There is some, ten, there is some um, benefit in having time. There's definitely a lot of advantages in having time in the program. But this is like my insurance policy. I, mean, I never leave home without my 12-step re- recovery program and my higher power who I choose to call God. I didn't have a higher power when I came, came here. I was angry, resentful. It was everyone's fault. I thought I was agnostic. I found out pretty quickly in my first year of abstinence that maybe there is a God. Maybe there is a God that really cares about me. Maybe there's someone that I can depend on, that I can turn to, even though I don't understand this God at all, except that I know it works because I certainly couldn't do this by myself. I absolutely couldn't do it by myself. And I really believe that God speaks through all of you and that when you share, you share, this is like the, the language I learned here is different than I learned I, anywhere else, certainly in my home. And it wasn't intended to be that way, but, you know, the language of the heart, that's what I learned here in this program, is that there's an authenticity in our sharing that I don't find in any other room other than Overeaters Anonymous or 12-step program rooms. And in the very beginning, I went to 12 meetings a week, my first three years in the program, because I thought, you know, this is, this is like 
going back to school, learning about life. I have to start all over again. And so I need to come every single day to take the stuff out of my head and get refed, reprogrammed, and reborn through this program with all new information. And that's what it's about for me. I'm going to stop sharing now. I don't know what time it is, but I think we might have time for questions. question was, do I still eat fruits and vegetables and, and protein, or do I, do I restrict what I eat? No. The big shock was, after 30 years of abstinence, <laughs> I, had, um, I started um, really broadening what I ate. Actually, I started broadening what I ate. I'm basically a moderate mealer. I eat anything and everything, three meals a day and nothing in between. It took a long time to get there. Um, and it was never a goal. I'll add that. It was never a goal that someday I'll eat like a normal If you watch the way that I eat, you'd think she's like a normal person, um, whatever that is. Um, but the basic bottom line is probably 75% or 80% of what I eat are fruits, vegetables, and protein. That's what I, how I like to eat. I'm more comfortable eating that way. Okay, the question was... Um, what was it like, basically, what, when I got married? Were there any changes to my program? Yes. The first was, I really still feel really uncomfortable getting on my knees and praying in front of my husband. I just can't do it. So when he turns around, I get on my knees. But in the morning, I wake up before him. That's at night. In the morning, I'm on my knees because my husband's still sleeping, which is really awesome. He, we've got, like, he's a night person. I'm a morning person. Sounds like, how does that work? It works out really well. I have the morning. It's great. I have the morning. He goes to work later than me. I go in earlier. I get to, like, do my meditation and prayer, walk the dogs, do my thing for a half hour, 20, 30 minutes, and um, have breakfast. It's really peaceful. Um, it's peaceful anyway, but, but I'm, I get to do that by myself, which is really my time with God. I really like that. Um, as far as um, my change my meeting locations when I got married, because I moved from one end of the valley to another end of the valley, um, so I changed a, a couple of my meetings. Um, but other than that, I mean, I'm working a heavier program. I'm in a relationship. you got to, like, really work the steps in <laughs> relationship. That's what I find. So... Uh, he's not the target all the time, though, that's for sure. Um, the world in general, um, whatever's crossing my path. Uh, before I got married, it was always whoever I was dating was like, they were on the list. That was it. Got it. Oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. That's wrong. Um, that's not who I married. Um, but definitely, um, my program did get intensified. I went into whole hog into Al Anon. Um, actually, that was before I got married. But, um, so, it did change. The question is, what is my spiritual practice? So, I get on my knees and I, get, and I wake up and turn my will and my life over to my higher power. Um, I will get in, I get in the shower and I say my first three steps in the shower. If I, ten minutes, okay, thank you. Uh, if I'm walking the dogs that day, which is about four or five, four days a week probably, I get. I have an opportunity to talk to God. Then I want to come back into the house. I take out my my big book. I have several books that I read. I reach page 86, 87, and 88. Plus, then I read one page or sometimes a paragraph, um, and then I write something, just a, a few words about what I read on that particular page or those few paragraphs or paragraph. I can just read one paragraph and I'm 
okay with that. Um, I read a 24-hour day book. I have a whole slew of, like, daily, you know, readers. And so I, I pick up one or two. Um, my meditation is anywhere between three minutes and ten minutes. Uh, so I do meditate um, every day. And I, I read the prayer of St. Francis. And I think I also have, I did Transcendental Meditation back in the day when the Beatles were doing it. Um, so I did TM. Um, I came to Brentwood. I, they stuck me in a room. And they told me my secret, my secret mantra, which they probably told everyone. They all had the same one because they couldn't tell anyone what our mantra was. I've never told anyone. And all that since 1977. So I, I've got my mantra. It's mine. You can't have it. Um, and once a week, I talk to my sponsor. Um, she's got about 35 people she sponsors, so I have 15 minutes with her once a week. But I make other phone calls. So I make between one and two or three phone calls during the day, just kind of like a hi, how are you phone call, like checking in, not checking in with them and trying to keep what's going on with me out of the conversation, um, just to connect with other overeaters. Um, and if I'm in some kind of a emotional state where I have to talk to someone, um, then I'll make a phone call for that, for that reason. So that's pretty much it. I'm going to meetings, and I do a lot of service. Um, I don't do a lot. I, I do service at the meetings that I go to. How do you work step 10? Oh, my favorite. I love Step 10. It's, like, so awesome. That's how Step 10 is writing. I mean, I write my 10th step. I forgot that. I forgot some other things. I'm going to go into that more. Yeah, so I I write a letter to God in the morning, and it starts off with, um, Dear God, help me to uncover, discover, and discard the truth about fill in the blank. Why I'm angry. This morning, I just... I went from there, and then I did the three columns on page 60, is it page 65 in the big book, Angry at Why Affects My. And so I wrote, wrote the column method of what I was angry about, um, why in the third column. Um, then I'll write, look at my defects of character, because I want to get rid of those things and ask God to replace it with the opposite. Um, that's generally how I do my 10 step. So it starts in the morning. I know the book says, do it at night. I don't do it at night. I'm like a just too busy at night. I just don't. I do it in the morning. Um, I do it in the morning. That's, that's my that's my ten step, and I've been doing it since the beginning. I really believe it's really pretty much um, a linchpin, a foundation of my abstinence. Without letting go of my anger, my resentments, looking at my defects, forget about it. I just I, I don't want to walk out the door with that kind of stuff going on in my head. Oh, my God. Um, the, what is, the question is, can you list some of the defects that you come up with? There's probably about 40. Um, on my own, I come up with about six or seven. Um, so my big ones are fear and resentment, that there's greed and sloth. I look at the seven deadly sins. Um, they're in the book. There's like a lot of them. And when I share with my sponsor, I had a sponsor. I had, I gave her an inventory, and in my big book, she said, okay, you're going to start writing. And she had like a double-column list of my defects. It was shocking. <laughs> oh, my God. And I get to work on that stuff. So, But the big ones for me are, are um, resentment and fear. 
But the seven deadly sins, sloth, I never thought, me, no, you know, I'm like focused, I'm onto it, I'm successful. What a sloth. That's another one. Gluttony, ooh. I don't want my meals to end. I don't know if that's what, it's like so sad when the meal ends. <laughs> I hate it when it's over. It's like, oh, darn, this is it until the next one. And that might be tomorrow morning. Okay. Okay, the question is, how many times did I break my abstinence and how long did it take for me to get continuous abstinence? Correct. Okay, I came to the program in June and I got abstinence right away. Um, for three weeks right away. And then a reason flew in. Boom. One of my best friends that I hung out with in Europe, I lived in Israel for about four and a half months of that almost 11 and a half months period I was gone and she flew into town and within three days I was like going nuts she was going to stay for three weeks house guest equals house pest after that long ooh not good <laughs> not good but it didn't take that long for me to start binging and um, so I broke my abstinence and I put her on the plane at LAX and it was bye bye and I started abstaining immediately and then four months later I found several reasons to break my abstinence again. They were good ones. My car broke down. My cat got sick. I was going to have lunch with my mother, and that can be dangerous. That's how I felt. So I broke my abstinence. And the way I broke it was I, I learned how to eat with dignity at the, from the very beginning. I got new plates, new dinnerware. I got placemats. I sat down. I didn't eat in the car. I didn't throw things out the window. I learned how to eat like a lady. And the night before the binge, um, I was standing up and eating out of cans. And I went, ooh, this is, this is not good. There's some, something is really wrong here. And I had been really obsessed with food for about three weeks before that binge. And I was on, like, my favorite little four-day weekend with my family in Santa Cruz. The family, the only family I thought really that cared about me in Santa Cruz. And it was a great time. And I started obsessing about chocolate cake. Now, how do you, I, all, my only means of transportation, because my family picked me up at the airport, was a bicycle. How do you get a chocolate cake into a backpack? I don't know. It didn't work. So when I got home... I had this funky meal the night before, and then the next day I binged. And it was, in terms of quantity, it was nothing like what I had done before. It was much smaller. And that was the last binge. And that was December 1st, 1975. And my thinking was suicidal. It was like, I'm going to read something to you. Page 25. If you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into the region from where there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. The other was to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and we were willing to make the effort. That was what the point I had reached. It's time for me to stop. Thank you.